purple elephant shower thought of the day. A different version of you exists in the minds of everyone you know. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Today's episode, I think I'm probably the most ambivalent about recording, mainly because I think that this, more than any other, will kind of expose my weird philosophies of life to their extreme, because I'm talking about someone who has influenced me in the way I think about the world more than any other person, and that's Alan Watts. For those who don't know, Alan Watts was an author and a lecturer who really kind of had his claim to fame in the 60s with the counterculture movement because what he lectured about in the books that he wrote were converting this Eastern wisdom from Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism and bringing it to a Western audience and explaining it in a way that really resonated with the the counterculture movement, the hippie culture movement of the 60s. And he passed away um, early in 1970s, but his work still lives on. His lectures are still circulating on YouTube. And during the beginning of the pandemic, I bought a few of his books and really just dove deep into his work. And I really think the way he speaks, the way he phrases things has this kind of ability to soothe an existential crisis. So my goal in recording this episode is hopefully to kind of get you to explore his work a little bit deeper and maybe just shift the way you see things. And kind of have a better understanding of cycles and the importance of curiosity and wonder. And maybe just take a step back from all this rush of getting things done and doing things on a deadline. And just thinking about it from a wider lens. From a more meta perspective. I think this episode is more relevant than ever. Because of this rise over the past couple years of mindful meditation in the Western world. Apps like Headspace and Calm, and there are plenty others on the market, and they by no means have an evil intent. But I think their marketing subtly says this. They don't say it implicitly, but it implies that the mind is something that can be stopped or controlled. And I've used Headspace. I know a lot of their techniques are about noting the bad thoughts and letting them pass. But I still think people in the Western world, including myself, I'm talking from experience, get these apps and start this practice of meditation, of mindful meditation, because we think it will slow down the bad thoughts, cease the bad thoughts to exist. And even if it's just a slight idea that that's possible, 
that alone, that Western way of thinking, of thinking about how the mind is something to be controlled is absurd. It's like if we looked outside and willed our eyes to stop seeing or we walked into a kitchen and we willed our nose to stop smelling. Because when we talk about any of the other five senses, we know it's impossible to control it by our own um, conscious will. But I think, and I don't know where this idea comes from, but I think a lot of people, including myself in the past, think that this mind is something separate. A separate sense, one that we have control over because we use words like I and me when we think. And we think that this I, this ego, is something that can control the thoughts that go through our head. And I think the other problem with this app, the bigger problem, because you might disagree with that other point, is this focused focus on end results. Focus on end abstract results. Happier. More successful. More productive. To be 10% happier. What does that even mean? I hate that that is how meditation is being marketed. That we have to back up meditation with research. As if that's the only way that it's effective. As if with double-blind, placebo-controlled studies that meditation works. Works for what? Happiness is subjective. All those big abstract words are subjective. Which means the placebo effect would work. So why so much research? If it makes you feel good, keep doing it. And this need for more links back to a great quote from Alan Watts' book, Become What You Are. And he says, why paint the roses red? Why would God, with the quotation marks, whatever you want to call it, universe, God, uh, the big it with a capital I, this uncomprehendable thing, why would it have to do more? Is the snow falling not enough? Is just to feel your own breath and be aware of it not enough? To smell a candle, does there have to be something deeper to it? I don't know. And see, the thing about mindful meditation is that it was designed for monks who lived in caves for 20 years, who devoted their whole life to try to clear their mind or gain enlightenment. I think that's such a small part of the uh, population that chooses to meditate. I think most people are doing it for the end result, to be more productive, more happy, more successful. And what I would say to those people is that there are better types of meditation. Something like transcendental transcendental meditation, the OM. That can put you in a different state much faster than mindful meditation. Stuff like a gratitude practice. Using audio, um, free audio tapes. Like Tony Robbins Priming Exercise on YouTube, which I personally use. 
or the six-phase meditation by Vishen Lakhiani. They're both available on YouTube. And I would also say, look up Alan Watts' meditation. It's 15 minutes on YouTube, and it's not about mindful meditation. It's about mindless meditation, which I think is what people are really looking for in those 15 minutes is just to feel calm. But instead, we stress ourselves out in those minutes of mindfulness, thinking we're doing it wrong or we're messing up. Find a different type. Because mindful meditation is not all that there is. There's plenty of others and plenty that are designed for a Western goal-oriented thinker like so much of us are, like I am. Which is why I don't do mindful meditation anymore. And I think that leads into the next topic of forced spontaneity. To sit down and do something random. It's like telling a kid to do that little song and dance they just made up on the spot. Do it again. Do it for the relatives. But that only makes the kid more self-conscious. It makes them get in their own head and then it's not spontaneous. The antidote to forced spontaneity is a term called Wu Wei. But the word is a paradox. It translates to non-doing or non-striving. But how can you not strive? Because even if you're trying not to do anything, that is striving to do something. So you're caught between a, a rock and a hard place between trying to do something spontaneous to force spontaneity and to not try to do anything at all. But that's still trying. So how can you practice Wu Wei? It seems like no matter which way you turn, you're still striving to something. And to that I say, look to nature. Look to unconscious living things. Because they practice it every moment. An acorn becomes a tree without contemplating how or why. It's spontaneous, but it's not forced. They're moving, they're growing, and yet they're not striving. So what do you take from that? You have to come to the conclusion that you can't do anything. Because no matter which way you turn, you're always going to be striving towards something. And to realize that, to give up, to say no matter which way I turn, I'll never be spontaneous. I'll never be random. To give up the goal is to practice Wu Wei. But even me saying that, even me saying try to practice Wu Wei, it's still not getting it. I can only circle around the answer with my words. I can never point to it. So I would say, figure out what it means to you. The next thing I want to do is tell you a little story. There was a Zen Buddhist master 
in charge of a monastery, and he had a cat. A cat that he loved. A cat that, during his meditation classes, he would keep by his side. But then he passed away. And his cat still lived. But his successors didn't know what to do with the cat. Honor of that monk, they kept it. And as word spread to different monasteries, people saw the cat and thought that it was the reason for that monk's success and fame of, such, of having such a great monastery. And so years and years, different, different monasteries would collect cats thinking that it would make them better at meditation, better at their practice. And even when the cat died, people would continue to get new cats because they assumed it was a key to success. And generations passed, and then there was a master who was allergic to cats. And so he got rid of it. And people reacted negatively, thinking that it was going to make them worse at their practice, worse at meditating but it didn't. As time went on, people realized that the cat didn't have the powers, this ability to help people meditate the way that they thought. And so little by little, the cat left the monasteries. But in that 200-year span, no one asked why the cat was there in the first place. Why? the cat that's the moral of the story a question why was the cat there it was there for a very concrete sincere reason the monk loved the cat but as time went on and people stopped asking the root question they came up with these crazy metaphysical answers instead of just saying maybe the cat was there for company and not for any special, deeper spiritual reason. And that bodes well for the next topic of nihilism, existentialism, and Alan Watts. Why the purpose of life? Not what, why, why do we ask the question? Who asked it first? That question is like the cat, because maybe there isn't a deeper reason and maybe it's absurd to keep asking the question. I think a trend since the days of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung is this philosophy of logical positivism, which is focused solely on the truth of a statement, the truth of words. It doesn't look past that at all. It doesn't focus on metaphysical statements because they can't be proven. Logical positivism is what influences science. And I think it's a great thing in many ways. But when we only use it as a culture and we ignore the metaphysics, we are missing a part of ourselves, a deeper part of ourselves. I think we do need to ask what is the purpose of life, of our life. Because I think when we come to a crisis in thinking that our life in the world has no meaning, then it's a toxic thought. 
nihilism is a toxic philosophy, one that you need to get out of as quickly as you fell into it. Existentialism is similar, but I think existentialism needs to lead to, or at least work together with the philosophy of Alan Watts. And his philosophy included ideas from Hinduism, Taoism, and Buddhism, and he kind of took the parts that resonated with him best. So I think existentialism, although it sounds like a crisis because that's the only time we use the word, it's okay because what it does is it asks you to create your own purpose in life. It says that there can be a meaning in life if you choose one. The reason why nihilism is so toxic is because it refuses even that thought. It says there's no greater purpose and you can't even pick a purpose of your own because it's pointless. So ignore nihilism. Run away from nihilism. Beat it away with a six-foot stick. And take existentialism and the Watts philosophy and use the best of both. To touch back on logical positivism, they often make the argument that words have no meaning because words can only be defined with other words so no word can exist on its own. And I agree with that. Based on Alan Watts's reasoning, I agree with that. But Watts takes it one step further and says that words are simply pointing. They're full of meaning because they're pointing at the ineffable, the unspeakable. They by themselves, yes, they are meaningless, but when they point, their meaning is to point at the ineffable. A sunset, me saying the word sunset, is nothing. But if we were together on a hill watching a sunset, looking at the colors, the cotton candy clouds, and not defining it with the words like I'm doing right now, that is what the words are pointing at. That is the ineffable. The great mystery of life is the stuff right in front of our eyes. The stuff beyond words is right in front of you. There's a great quote in The Way of Zen by a guy named Ching Yuan. And he says, Before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and waters as waters. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains. And waters are not waters. But now I have got its very substance, and I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains once again as mountains, and waters once again as waters. Wonder. What is the pursuit of wonder? And I'll just hit you back to back with another quote. The highest to which man can attain is wonder. And if the prime phenomenon makes him wonder, let him be content. Nothing higher can it give him, and nothing further should he seek from behind it. Here is the limit. We talk about the pursuit of happiness, but I think we should be pursuing wonder. Pursuing the stuff that baffles our minds so much that we can't even come up with the words to explain it that we can only experience it. 
that's the highest state man can attain. But how does curiosity fit into that? To me, I think that wonder comes first, then curiosity, this urge to know how it was done. And that leads to creation, to creativity. To, to put it into a specific example, think of the magician, the kid who sees a magic trick and can't understand how it's done. They're caught in a state of awe. And so they become curious. And then they buy a magic kit of their own and practice on their own because they're curious for themselves. And they create their own tricks. And maybe they tell jokes with it and realize that the jokes have a bigger impact than the magic. So now they wonder what entertains an audience. And they become more curious trying out different things, magic tricks, jokes, props. And then they become one of the most well-known stand-up comedians of all time. I'm talking about Steve Martin. So the takeaway from that is when you seek wonder, curiosity will follow. Don't suppress curiosity. Curiosity, yes, is a kind of selfish ego desire to control. To control what happened. To have an understanding of it. But that's okay because it leads to creation and it creates wonder for other people. When you're creative and you create new things, you can provide wonder and awe to others. And the cycle will continue. The cycle of wonder and awe, then curiosity and control and creativity in creating and so on. The next piece of Alan Watts's philosophy I wanted to talk about is opposites. And more so, they will always exist. Up cannot exist without down. Black cannot exist without white. Red cannot exist without blue. The figure cannot exist without the background. Because I've heard it phrased by Watts like this. A song can start with silence. But then you add in a couple... A couple drum beats. And then maybe you overlay some guitar. And then you add more and more and more. Until it's this smorgasbord of sound. To where there's no bits of silence. And what you're left with is white noise, once again, of nothing. Because a drumbeat can only be made with bursts of silence in bursts of sound. Music is made from the in-betweens, between the up and down, the sound and silence. Because when one thing is taken to its extreme, it's like it doesn't exist at all. If there's only light, then there is no light. Because darkness and light need each other. Their contrast is what gives each of them meaning. That is my understanding of the yin-yang symbol. One of my favorite things that Watts talks about in one of his books is the prickly people and the gooey people. The prickly people being those logical positivists I mentioned before who judge based on logic and research. And then the gooey people are the spiritual people. 
But if we were all logical positivists, and if no one wondered about the mystic, then there would be no philosophy. There would be no one to argue against. It wouldn't be a topic of discussion. And the same is true for the opposite. If everyone was ultra-spiritual and everyone agreed on the same thoughts, then there would be no spiritual. There would be no contrast to give the gooey people meaning, to discern them from the prickly people. And to go along with that is this idea of cycles. And I talked about that with the music of needing the both the on and the off to create something beautiful. And I think to understand cycles is so vital. Because what it says is when you understand both sides of the coin and understand that it is a coin, that light and dark are so connected that they could not exist without one another. To understand the coin, I think, is to enjoy the flip. To enjoy the thrill of not knowing whether it will land heads or tails. To understand that bad gives good purpose. That dark gives light meaning is comforting. Because it doesn't automatically get rid of any pain you may be feeling. But it's the understanding that because you're experiencing pain now, that good will follow. And it's the humility to understand that if you're feeling good now, it won't last forever. And that's okay because the cycle continues and it's a beautiful cycle. And I think when you understand the cycle, you have an appreciation for both the good and the bad, the pain and the pleasure. Because I think one of the things I've noticed is we only question the choices we've made when we feel bad. When we're, when we're in a state of pleasure, that isn't the time for reflection. So I think the pain is a blessing in disguise. The silver lining of any bad moment is that it causes you to question and reflect. And you can use that as your advantage to spark change and growth and a better life than you ever could have lived without having gone through that pain. And the final thing I should mention is the meta cycle. And this is the cycle of believing in cycles. It's the cycle of ego association and universe association. And you can take right now a moment to think, are you the person who leans more towards thinking that everything is connected? Or are you the person who thinks I am me and everyone else is everyone else? And although, yeah, we exist in the same world, we're not that connected. It doesn't matter what your answer is because that is a cycle. I think because right now I feel like I'm in this universe association end of the cycle, I think because I have that belief, it's easy to see that everything is a cycle, that good equals bad and bad equals good. But I think if I was in the ego association mode, the mode of trying to get money and get to a certain end goal, then it would be harder for me to understand that bad has a silver lining, that it leads to good. Or for me to understand that the good won't last forever. So this idea of the meta cycle is the belief, this rotating belief that sometimes you understand the cycle of good and bad and sometimes you don't or you ignore it.
you'll go through the phases I've gone through the phases. And I understand that it will change. That I won't stay in this ultra spiritual uh, mode of thinking forever. But if I don't stay in it, I'll come back. But now I wanted to talk about the ultimate cycle. The cycle between life and death. And all I can say is contemplate it. Contemplate death. I wrote uh, a blog called Memento Mori, but I didn't explain the story behind it. And the story goes, there were generals parading through the streets of Rome during a victory march. And a slave would be tasked with walking behind them and just saying, Memento Mori, Memento Mori, Memento Mori. Remember your mortal. Remember your own morality. And it was used to humble them. But I think it was also used as a way for them to appreciate the moment they were in. I think the phrase, live as if there's no tomorrow, is rightly thought of as irresponsible. Because that's often thought of with a hedonistic point of view. If there is no tomorrow, then I'll drink myself to sleep. Then I'll take all the drugs and um, have as much sex as I can because tomorrow won't come, so it doesn't matter. But the thing with that is that there's no limit to hedonism. That's its ultimate flaw. Because drink until what? Drink until you feel sick and gross and like throwing up and having alcohol poisoning? Because when you take a hedonistic perspective to the idea of live like there's no tomorrow, you're still thinking about a future moment. You're still trying to get drunk enough, high enough. You're not appreciating what's going on right now. You're not actually taking the lesson from live like it's there's no tomorrow. So I think there's a better phrase. Something a yogi would say. He said he lived like there's a sword constantly hanging above his head, held only by a cobweb. I'm not telling you to contemplate death as a way to give up all your goals and pursuits and just live on the side of a live in a park and be happy. No, I'm not saying that. That's unrealistic. What I'm saying is when you really integrate the practice of memento mori, when you truly do understand that death is a sword hanging above your head by a cobweb, of course you might take the bleak, morbid perspective and thinking there's no hope but I beg you I beg you to look at the other perspective to look at it with an optimist's eye to see that the point of contemplating death is to give life fullness to give it color to realize that there's no other place to go that right now is an insanely precious moment I'll end with two poems from a Zen monk and hermit named Rayokan. The first. The thief 
left it behind. The moon at the window. And the second, written when he was left without any money. The wind brings fallen leaves enough to make a fire. Thanks for listening. Seek wonder, be curious, and remember you're mortal too.